Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. You'll hear Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe on the issue of national unity. Former Liberal Member of Parliament Michelle Simpson on the removal of another Liberal incumbent by the party because they say that, well, she just didn't pass the test. She says she was removed because she wouldn't agree that Justin Trudeau is a feminist. We hear from parents on the issue of impaired driving and when children are either very seriously injured or lose their lives to drunk drivers. Joe Warmington of the Toronto Sun on the job stresses that can claim police officers' lives. Mike Smith from the Vancouver province and CKNW Radio on the election in British Columbia, including the Vancouver Granville race, where Jody Wilson-Raybould is running as an independent, and the president of the Canadian Medical Association, Dr. Sandy Buckman, with healthcare being the number one election issue for Canadians. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Roy Green Show for this Sunday. It's a busy one. We have lots coming up for you today. And we're going to begin with the Premier of Saskatchewan. Premier Scott Moe joins us. And uh, once again, Premier, thank you for the time. And once again, you find yourself... Uh, at the very cusp, or very the very top of the most uh, popular premiers in Canada, congratulations! <laughs> yeah, yeah. For uh, you know, another another poll is out. I, I suppose, and uh, maybe I'll be down in history uh, in fifty years from now. Is uh, you know being being involved in, in some of the good uh, in our nation. Obviously, I was thinking uh, with your introductory song, of which you always have the best introductory music. Uh, but today, with the fifty year celebration of of the Beatles uh, music, it was fifty years ago that we also. Uh, had the the um, the induction of the Saskatchewan flag, which also came from an individual from Britain that was teaching in Saskatchewan at the time. He designed our flag, actually, Anthony Drake, in 1969. What a great story! Yeah, you know what my favorite song was from Abbey Road. She came in through no. the bathroom window. <laughs> God knows why that was my favorite song. <laughs> Well, you have excellent taste in music, if I go by your, your introduction. Yeah, well, thank you. I don't have much to do with that. I Just a little. If, if I hear something I don't like, they know about it. But, um, but, <laughs> usually, but usually, usually it's pretty good. Premier, thank you very much for taking the time. And here we are in the middle of the federal election campaign. You haven't said about, you haven't indicated uh, whether you support any particular party or not. Um, but you have spoken out about your concerns about the issue of unity in this country. You're worried about it. And uh, I, I know that you, when you were speaking to the Regina Chamber of Commerce, included in the speech, something is seriously uh, amiss in our federation. Would you speak to that, please? Oh, yeah, absolutely. If you, if you look at the direction that we have chosen uh, in, this, in this nation, um, something is amiss in our federation. And I have always said that I am going to stand up for a, a strong and, and prosperous Saskatchewan. But I have every intent of doing that within a strong and united Canada. And if, if you look at what is important to us in this coming election and over the course of the next few weeks of which we all have the opportunity uh, to determine our path, and I would suggest that we need to take a different path than we have uh, the last four years. And and here's the questions that I've been asking myself, and I would encourage Canadians to ask themselves, is, is uh, how do we create wealth in, in our community, in our province, and, and in our nation? And are, are, are we truly supporting one another as, as being Canadians first in that wealth creation? Because 
what is good for Ontario, Quebec, Atlantic Canada, the northern areas, what is good for Saskatchewan, Alberta, British Columbia, is good for every other area in the nation as well. And we need to ask ourselves, um, how do we actually create that wealth and, and how do we want to continue to do that into the future? Um, and there is the second question. How do we ensure that those careers and those industries are available in the future? And we need to, yes, uh, ensure that our, envir- our environmental impact is minimized for those future generations. So how do we create wealth today? How are we going to create wealth tomorrow? And how are we going to ensure that we leave this place just a little bit better than we found it? I'll just give you a little bit of an editorial thought on, on my part. It doesn't help when Mr. Singh, the NDP leader, says that pr- provinces individually should have the right to veto uh, pipelines heading across uh, their territory. And I know he's speaking specifically about the province of Quebec, where the federal NDP have been facing some uh, significant uh, defections, it appears, as far as voters are concerned. So maybe Mr. Singh is just trying to reclaim territory. But I don't find that particularly helpful or helpful at all when you already have a premier, uh, Premier Legault, who says he doesn't like Alberta dirty oil. Well, it, it, and it, you know, more concerning than than anything is it's, it's directly con, it's con, uh, contradictory to the Constitution of Canada that says the the federal government will uh, determine uh, with re, with respect to the going forward of nation building projects like railways, uh, like like yes, uh, corridors, national energy corridors, if you will, that will transport not only uh, energy products, and I always say the most sustainable energy products produced in the world, from areas in Canada to other areas where we can add value to them and and make them available to other Canadians, but also to the rest of the world. It also has the opportunity to transport uh, other other types of energy across our nation as well. We have hydroelectric energy in Manitoba and Quebec and, and in Newfoundland and Labrador that we need to get across this country, and we need to have a, a much more mature decision on our conversation, if you will, on how we're actually going to do that. So Mr. Singh's comments are, are not only troubling, uh, not only um, uh, add to the to the uh, the questions around, you know, are we a Canadian? Are we truly Canadians first, or are we um, are we going to going to be concerned with our our small regions' uh, uh, parochial interests, if you will? So it's it's a problem when you see a federal leader coming up with regionalistic uh, concerns and comments uh, like that. Even a larger problem when you see that they are actually in direct conflict with the the Canadian Constitution that we have, uh, you know, always obeyed. And our situation, the one that we're facing now, the uh, the unity issue, and it's not something to be dismissed. Nobody can sit in any part of the country and say, oh, it's just them complaining uh, about whomever they may be pointing the finger at. This situation has been deteriorating for some period of time. This isn't something that's brand new. It has to be stopped now because if it goes any further, I think once, once people become utterly frustrated, uh, then it's hard sometimes to pull them back. It, it absolutely is, and 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 here's where we we find ourselves. And I, I will speak from Saskatchewan's perspective. And I, I as I say again, um, I will always stand up for a strong province of Saskatchewan, strong communities, a strong strong economy. But I am going to do everything in my power to ensure that 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 Saskatchewan is strong within a United Nation of Canada. Where we have gone over the course of the last few years is we have gone down this path of divisiveness, where we see a a federal government that has made decisions and made uh, has really prioritized uh, increasing taxation, increasing regulation, picking winners and losers in industries, if you will. And this is much broader than, than just Western Canada. Um, this this leans into uh, businesses and industries that are operating 
and employing people in in central canada and atlantic canada as well and i i would put forward the the uh, the auto manufacturing industry predominantly yes in in ontario and quebec employing half a million half a million uh, workers uh, in those provinces in communities in those provinces putting putting food on the table for half a million families in those provinces but is not only uh, good for adding uh, uh, wealth to Canada, $20 billion added to our GDP, but it's not only good for those Ontario and Quebec communities. I would put forward that it's good for all of Canada, and, and here's one of the reasons why. Uh, those, those auto manufacturers, those Canadian auto manufacturers, are manufacturing their cars with half the greenhouse gas emissions that many European auto manufacturers are, and this is an industry that we should support, and this is an industry that is is uh, being challenged with the with the policies, the taxation policies, the regulatory policies that are coming over the course of the last uh, two to four years of the of the choices that we have made at the federal level. And this is one of the examples why not only in in Western Canadians uh, Western Canada's case, of which I've spoken to often, but also when it comes to jobs and and how we create wealth in in Ontario and in Quebec and in Atlantic Canada, uh, we need to be very careful about the choice that we are going to make over the course for, for the course of the next four years. Premier, yesterday I spoke with a representative of the Montreal Economic Institute about a poll they had done, or Leger did for them. And it's not the first time we talked to them about this poll, but I thought it was particularly relevant given what's going on in the election campaign and the whole issue of energy and pipelines. And the reminder is, from the Montreal Economic Institute, is that 66% of Quebecers when asked, want their oil to be from Western Canada. Uh, Only 7%, the next highest number, want their oil from the United States, and then it just deteriorates or disappears off the radar screen as far as any other countries are concerned. 66% want their oil from Western Canada. How many want uh, prefer pipelines over any other way of transporting oil? 45% of Quebecers say pipelines is the best way to do this. The next highest number is 14%, which is by truck. The next one is rail at 13%, and then it's by ship at 9%. So that's the average Quebecer. And what we found also, what that poll found was that 79% of Quebecers who supported and voted for the CAC party and Francois Legault, the premier, 79% of them say they want their oil from uh, for Quebec from Western Canada if it can't be a Quebec oil uh, reality. They want it from Western Canada. That's the people of Quebec speaking very clearly. Well, I, I would agree with 66% of the people in Quebec and 79% of those that, that support the current Premier of Quebec in the fact that uh, a national energy corridor is not only good for uh, uh, Western Canadian opportunity, and, and we can speak to the energy, the most sustainable energy available of that type of a product of crude oil in, in Western Canada that can then be uh, transported to eastern Canada can then be uh, have value added to it and made available for not only the people in Quebec but the people across our nation and then exported uh, to other areas of the world. That that in in itself is good for not only Western Canada, not only Atlantic Canada, but is good for all of the people in Canada as as we share that wealth uh, uh, with with the rest of our nation and are happy to do so. Um, the, this again uh, points us to this national energy corridor conversation that. And I, I know there was a commitment made to this uh, by Andrew Scheer earlier this week, which I uh, commend uh, the Conservative Party for doing so and to encourage the other parties uh, to look at that um, because it also provides the opportunity for us, in, for example, in, 
in, uh, in, in the Prairie provinces who are going to need to transition how we create our ele- electricity. Uh, it provides uh, that open conversation for us as to how are we actually going to ac- access that that uh, that more cl- more clean, less less uh, less emitting energy into the future or electricity into the future, and we have areas of this nation where we are producing surplus amounts of hydroelectric energy, and and we're going to need uh, either that some of that energy or some nuclear energy or something of that type uh, as we look down the way. So I uh, I agree with 66% of Quebecers when it comes to how can we not only transport our our products back and forth across this nation? How can we not only uh, create uh, a value in our communities, create jobs in our communities across Canada, um, but also how can we do so with the best interests of the environment uh, in the years ahead in mind? And how can we do so with the best interests of the opportunity for careers for our children in mind as well? Right. The, the industries that we have and how we create wealth, um, we need to utilize uh, the wealth from those industries if we are going to truly transition our economy. Norway did this. They didn't. They didn't become a wealthy country by keeping their oil in the ground. They they utilized that resource to transition their economy into one of the cleanest in the world today. Yes, but they did it through developing the resources that they have as a nation. Premier, do you have a few more minutes? I just have one more question for you, but I have to take a break. Can you do that? I certainly do. Thank you. My guest is. Premier Scott Moore of Saskatchewan. We have a couple of minutes left with the Premier. About three minutes, Premier. I want to come back, if you if you don't mind, to the overarching issue of national unity, and it's not something that we can dismiss. If this isn't handled, what and this being the energy reality and, and, and maximizing the energy possibilities and opportunities for Canadians, if we don't do that, where do we what are your concerns about unity in Canada? And then if you have ten seconds for your thoughts on uh, the life of Mr. Trudeau in the last two weeks. Well, yeah, I have, I have, I do have concerns with respect to what I am hearing as I travel across uh, the western areas of this nation. I'm hearing it in other areas of of Canada as well, as we have uh, made choices over the course of the last few years that are uh, essentially picking winners and losers when it comes to the industries that are are creating wealth in in Canada. The the manufacturing industry, the auto manufacturing industry I spoke to, the the mining industry employs further 400,000 people. The agriculture industry is being hit by these policies. The energy industry uh, is really the canary in the coal mine when it comes to the the attack uh, that it has seen uh, by federal policy over the course of the last few years. And uh, we need to change our course. And and I was hopeful that we would see uh, the two main parties that have the you know, the opportunity to, to actually govern here, the, the Conservatives and the Liberals, that we would see uh, both of them putting forward policies that would that would really give us the opportunity to expand all of those industries and uh, make those products available to, to everyone in the world. Um, that isn't happening as the platforms are, are beginning to un, un, uh, uh, be released, if you will. So, you know, what we have experienced in a nutshell over the course of the last five years is uh, in 2013, uh, $73 billion in foreign direct investment into all of our Canadian industries. We're down now $22 billion from that number. Um, that is a signal that people are not investing in our nation, in all industries. Yes, the energy industry, but the other industries across Canada as well. And, and we need to pay heed to that number. And, and we need to uh, quit, for example, ignoring our trade relationships with the United States and China and India and other areas around the world. 
and we need to really have a look at how can we um, how can we enhance our opportunities for success and not just today for today but success in transitioning our economy through utilizing the wealth of the traditional industries that we have if we don't do that um, there is a there is a, a really a real feeling of of uh, milking the perpetual uh, equalization cow uh, far too hard uh, when it comes to uh, West, Western Canadian right. sentiments. I'll, uh, I'll leave Mr. Trudeau off the, uh, off the schedule for now, Premier, because we only have four seconds left. But I do appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. You've uh, always given us straight answers, and uh, thanks for the time today. Thank you, Ray. It's a huge issue. Premier Scott Moe, it's a huge issue. Okay, so now there's a story that I'm sure you've heard that I want to follow up on, and it's the story of um, Eva Nassif. She was a Liberal Member of Parliament for the Quebec riding of Vimy, and uh, she was elected in 2015, and she was running again in 2019, until Ms. Nassif's campaign was red-lighted by the Liberal Party, and she was arbitrarily replaced by the party. Now, Ms. Nassif has said, and she says, that she was removed as the Liberal candidate for Vimy in Quebec because she refuses to acknowledge Justin Trudeau as a feminist, this following the SNC-Lavalin-Trudeau-PMO-Jody-Wilson-Raybould scandal. Mr. Trudeau says that's not true. That's not why she was removed. Uh, he says probably has what has to do with the vetting process within the uh, Liberal Party, that she was red-lighted. Well, I can think of a couple of reasons why Mr. Trudeau might be red-lighted. But anyway, that aside, what happened then was the Writing Association, which had been able to put together a $40,000 war chest to fund their local campaigning for Ms. Nassif, the local Writing Association said to the Federal Liberal Party, and this was in the last 36 hours or so, we're not giving you that money. We, we, we collected that money for the candidate who we approved, who you'd approved, and we're not going to give the money to you so you can give it to the candidate you're parachuting in. And that came from the Liberal Writing Association president in Vimy, Giuseppe Margiotta. Well, I called Mr. Margiotta today because I wanted him to come on the show and talk about this. And uh, we had a brief conversation, and he said, I can't go on the air with you, Mr. Green. I'd like to, but I can't, because I'm no longer the Writing Association president. So either he resigned or he was resigned, one or the other. Anyway, my uh, good friend and our good friend, Michelle Simpson, former liberal MP and seatmate to Justin Trudeau during question period, and of course, a uh, stellar member of our Beauties and the Beast broadcast panel, joins us on the show, and as you know, Michelle sat um, beside Justin Trudeau uh, day after day during question period when they were both in the opposition. Michelle, when, when the, what is this story, what does this smack off to you? Oh, Roy, I'm dying, dying to see who they parachute in, because I think they have a plan. I have the name of the person here somewhere. Oh, do you? I didn't. Yeah. I haven't seen it. I, I but have I the name thought, here somewhere. I think the the riding association, not just the president. I was the president of a riding, and I wouldn't turn over any of that money, 
no matter what. The person who uh, who has replaced Ms. Nassif is uh, Annie Kutrakis. I don't know who Ms. Kutrakis is, but she's the new candidate for the Liberal Party. I, I'd like to I'd like to do some research on. Her. Does it sound Does it sound uh, possible to you that Ms. Nassif was removed, as she says? as the candidate for the Liberal Party because she would not, uh, would not agree that Justin Trudeau is a feminist. Would that be, is that, I mean, it would have to be personal from him then, wouldn't it? Yeah. And you know what? It's totally, um, as far as I'm concerned, it's totally possible because people have been replaced for less. And when I read that the Writing Association was going to refuse to turn over the money um, unless they all resigned, but they're all going to be replaced after the election. Uh, You know, I thought, good for you, because I was a writing president, and I wouldn't have turned over nickel one. So how much power does a writing association have in a situation like this, or any situation? Does the Writing Association have the power to say to the National Party, this is not the way we're going to do it, we are our own entity in this particular writing, we're doing it this way? If you, if you have backbone, you can do it. Okay. Seriously. And with respect to the money, they have no right to the money, because that writing may still want to field a candidate of their choice. See, what I don't quite understand here is that uh, Ms. Nassif uh, managed to be, to use Mr. Trudeau's terminology, be green-lighted in 2015 as the candidate. Yeah. But in 2019, she's red-lighted. I, I, I just don't understand that. If, if, if you didn't And pass she muster, won with 46% of the vote. It isn't like she just squeaked. Exactly. That's why I wanted to see and find out more about whoever the party is replacing her with. So now you know Justin Trudeau personally. You sat with him many, you know, on so so many occasions. You've had the conversations. He came in, as you've told us, with a sheaf of papers, and and instead of being parliamentary material, he was showing you articles that have been written about him. Fair enough. Um, So. What uh, what impact? Do, well, again, you 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 you're saying that it's possible that he would be sufficiently upset by Ms. Nassif not not agreeing that he's a feminist that he would engineer her departure. Oh, totally possible. Or some of his boys in the short pants. We don't like this, but they. I guess they figured they'd be safe. Because she won so much of the vote. Yeah. So what, what, what impact does this have on other writing associations? Oh, huge. You know, they decided, even though they said, oh, no, we won't interfere with writings, that was BS. I'm dead serious. They interfered when they thought it would suit them. They didn't really have... When I said I wasn't going to run again, I, that was my decision. Okay. But they had Bill Blair as the candidate because it was a winnable writing. And the writing association, uh, my old writing association, 
didn't get the same input. I mean, he's a good candidate, and he's been a good MP, but they never had the same input. It really is a nasty game, isn't it? Oh. It really is nasty, just fundamentally nasty. It is. And, and, if, and if you don't agree with the leader, then there's a price to be paid, period. And yep. we, know, we know you were shut down. You were stopped from even speaking in Parliament. You That's couldn't even acknowledge the death, uh, deaths of two of your constituents, one a 21-year-old Canadian soldier who died in Afghanistan, yeah. the other a police sergeant who was run over by that maniac in a snowplow. Yeah. You weren't able because you refused to stop posting your expenses online. They took away your right to speak in Parliament. You weren't even allowed in Parliament to acknowledge the deaths of two of your constituents. That's absolutely true. Wow. So that tells you what depths they can go to. And it was a different leader. I mean, so it doesn't matter who's sitting in the leader's chair. They all act the same. Yeah. And I feel sorry for Ava Nassif because she did a good job and they couldn't even explain. They tried to with apparently untruths about what she didn't do um, to get reelected, but she was able to refute that, and nobody can okay. explain. Michelle, thank you very much. I appreciate you coming on. I wanted to have your thoughts on that. Good talking to you, as always. Always good talking to you, Roy. Michelle Simpson, former Liberal Member of Parliament. (sighs) Suspected of uh, driving under the influence. These are such difficult, difficult stories, news stories, events, moments in life to share with you. But they're so important. Uh, A British Columbia motorist is alleged to have hit two pedestrians uh, on September the 14th. One is 12-year-old Jesse Brown. He's in a coma and on life support. The suspected driver refused a roadside breathalyzer test and has not yet been charged. Tony Brown is the father of 12-year-old Jesse. He joins us on the program. Mr. Brown, thank you very much for talking to us. Uh, Very sorry to hear about your son. How is he? Um, he's actually, uh, <clears throat> they removed the tube out of his throat, so he's actually breathing on his own as of Friday. So, progress? Um, yes, a little. Guarded. What, uh, what, is it okay for me to ask you, uh, what, what are the, what the, uh, physical challenges are that he's facing? Um. That's up to you. Yeah, at this time, um. I don't think I want to discuss okay. um, what could possibly be until they find out for sure. Sure. Understood. Marquita Collius is with us as well. She's the founder of Families for Justice, and we've spoken with Ms. Collius on a number of occasions. Her 22-year-old daughter, Cassandra, was killed by an impaired driver who also attempted to flee the scene. Hi, Marquita. Hello, Roy. Never gets easier. Uh, no, it doesn't. It's just so sad to see another family have to face something, you know, the impact of a impaired driver's yeah. uh, choice to drive, drink and drive. And it's inevitably and invariably, it's the families of victims of drunk drivers or impaired drivers or the victims themselves who are the ones who step forward and try to make changes, try to have the law changed. Meanwhile, uh, the politicians drag their heels 
and the laws are very, very lax when it comes to somebody facing um, real punishment for having made a decision that uh, alters lives and, and takes lives. Yes, very much so. You know, we, we were just—I was just in court with a family on Thursday, and a fellow had killed two people and left a third with permanent uh, disabilities, and uh, he had nine previous driving infractions, including speeding and prohibited driving, and the uh, judge uh, gave him a sentence of 20 months for killing two and injuring uh, permanently a third. And, you know, I I question why he was still driving after nine driving infractions and why so little time when you've, you know, taken the life of two people. And we have another case before the courts right now where a gentleman killed a a woman and injured her daughter, and uh, he has... uh, Three immediate roadside prohibitions, a history of failing to stay at the scene of a collision, and uh, he didn't even have a driver's license. He was prohibited from driving. He actually said in court that he's never had a license, but he learned how to drive by watching a video game, and Crown is asking for uh, less than two years. Mr. Brown, as you hear all of this, and as you've become, uh, unfortunately, sadly, uh, very familiar with the realities of uh, of driving impaired and what what the laws permit and uh, what generally happens, has to be a shock to you. Am I right, Mr. Brown? Oh, I don't know if we've lost him there or not. Right? Are you still there, Mr. Brown? Yeah, I can just actually barely hear you. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry about that. But I don't know what they can do in the studio, but we'll hopefully find something. Can you hear me now? I, I, can, just, I can hear it, yeah. Okay. Well, as you find out what, uh, what the laws allow and what generally uh, happens to someone who uh, is, is facing and maybe then is also convicted of impaired driving, has to be a shock to you at how essentially lenient the system is. Yes. Um, you know, what I've learned uh, just through a short period of time is uh, you know, the, the police spend many and many hours of uh, police time investigating and doing uh, their investigation. But at the end of the day, the provincial government, the federal government doesn't really have their back. So all that time and energy is almost wasted, uh, essentially. Yeah, Marquita, you, sh- you shocked me. I mean, we've talked many times and I've been covering the story of impaired driving for many years, but I had no idea that just in, in, in the last eight years, more than 8,000 Canadians have been killed by impaired drivers. Yes, yes, and hundreds of thousands more have been injured. And I know, you know, I live in B.C., Roy, and uh, in 2010, the uh, provincial government brought forward some immediate uh, roadside prohibitions for people who were caught driving impaired. And in that year, just in B.C., they have removed over 227,512 people from driving impaired. That's through immediate roadside prohibitions, administrative driving prohibitions, and 24-hour suspension. That's in eight, eight years, 227,000? Yeah. yeah. Actually, and just uh, between May 31st of this year and July 31st of this year, just in B.C., they removed 3,286 people from driving impaired. You have made every effort, and you continue to make efforts, to persuade federal governments, provincial governments, to change the law. There was a private member's bill that was on, on the order, uh, or at least it was, it was, it was in, the, in the hopper, as, you, as it were, and yet that stopped when the election was, was called. So how difficult is it to get meaningful legislative change? 
Well, you know, this should be a mandatory priority for our federal government. I mean, impaired driving is the number one criminal cause of death in Canada, and we are losing thousands of innocent Canadians to this crime. And sadly, the laws that we have and the punishments that are being given out are doing nothing to deter people from driving impaired. Everybody knows that you should not do it. We've had that education and awareness for the last 40 years, but they're still continuing to do it. And they voted down the bill. We, you know, we submitted a petition with 120,000 names on it to the federal government asking for the laws to be changed in the interest of public safety, and they vetoed that down. I mean, they made some minimal changes, but right. nothing in the way of you know, tougher sentences. So for our, our listeners, they can go on, on your website, right? Yes, they can, yeah. And they go on Families for Justice and uh, check us out or okay. whatever. And I please encourage everybody to write their federal government. I mean, this may not have happened to your family yeah. yet, but it may in the future because, you know, we lose four to six people a day in Canada. And make it an election issue. Make it an yeah, election absolutely. issue. Absolutely. You know, and we had asked for the, the laws to be changed and the offense of impaired driving causing death to be changed to vehicular homicide as a result of impairment, which we thought would cover both drugs and alcohol. And, you know, as Tony has mentioned, too, then if not that, if they won't do that, then, wh- then why don't they do it as manslaughter, charge these people with manslaughter or attempted manslaughter? Can't say I disagree with that. Mr. Brown, all the very best to you, and, and we hope your son Jesse is is well soon, and, uh, and, and I know you'll continue to fight for changes in the, uh, in the law for repair driving. Thank you both very much for joining us today, and all the best to you. All right. Thank, thank you very, very much. much. Okay. Thank you. Tony Brown, his uh, 12-year-old son, who is hit by uh, uh, an alleged, no charges have been filed yet, uh, inebriated or at least an um, impaired driver, and Marquita Collius lost her 22-year-old daughter to another impaired driver. Make it an election issue. You can. Bring it up with the candidates. Get an answer from them. Healthcare is the uh, number one issue as far as the political uh, campaigns are concerned. The federal election with Canadians, healthcare is number one. And uh, later on in the show, we're going to be speaking again with the president of the Canadian Medical Association, Dr. Sandy Buckman. He'll be our guest. And uh, the CMA is making it very clear to the political parties that they better pay attention to healthcare issues. Uh, Disturbing stories concerning police officers um, first responders, and uh, one officer died by way of suicide in, in Ottawa. There are questions about a, a police officer who died on Friday in Toronto. My good friend Joe Warmington, great columnist with the Toronto Sun, has been writing about this. Joe, what uh, what are the stories? Well, they're both so sad, Roy, that you know it's hard to even talk about. But really, within a 24-hour period, we had you know, we start hearing trickling out uh, through gossip, et cetera, that there was two police officers that had taken their own lives in the case in Toronto on Thursday and then on Friday, right in the headquarters of Ottawa Police, another young officer took his life. And, um, you know, when you've got suicide uh, with uh, men and women that are, as you say, first responders, but particularly in this case, the police officers, it's it's not a, you know, you, we must talk about it because, you know the kind of pressure they're under, and uh, obviously this PTSD that we're so concerned about, about the veterans is hitting the police and the firefighters and the paramedics and, and all the people that try to keep us safe. You know, we uh, we heard some programs, Joe, and it's so sad to hear these stories 
about the police officers because we aired some shows uh, with first responders maybe uh, a year or two ago. And uh, it was paramedics, police officers, firefighters. And it's it was sort of a, it was a progressive problem. It just got bigger and bigger and bigger as they faced more and more and more challenging and more challenging emotionally and professionally circumstances. We actually also had a psychologist on who specializes in working with 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 uh, um, sort of the primary responders, the first responders. And uh, we, we had an idea of just how difficult it is, not only for the first responder, but also for their families. It becomes an impossible situation if they don't get help. Well, there's so much pressure on them. I mean, the red tape alone, you know, and all the things that I talked about in my column, which you can read on TorontoSun.com, that they're faced with before they ever step out of the station. And don't forget that we think of police as the ones you see with uniforms, and they do such a good job, and they're the ones that most people really like, and they're glad to see in their community. I know my son, every time he sees a police officer in uniform, runs up to get a picture, and they always oblige him. Uh, but it's the police officers you don't see on the projects uh, that, that are working you know, against organized crime or you know, this, uh, the child pornography and the hardcore drug pro- um, projects you know, where they have to go undercover as if they're a gangster or buying drugs. And the stress of that stuff is just off the charts. And the thing I think that the reason why you and I are doing this today is we want them to know all the police officers to know, and of course we think of the other first responders too, but we're talking about police in this case, that, you know, it's okay to be human, and uh, you are human. Yeah. You're not perfect, and you're not Superman or Superwoman, you know, Wonder Woman, all of that. And so, uh, you know, we've got to care about people, and I think that the institutions have to do that too. And remember that if you ever want to see something, it'd be an interesting show sometime, it'd be better for TV to show all the things that a police officer has to put on, all the different items and different things they have to do before they go out on shift and then take it off at the end. And if they mess up once in their shift, you know, and we had that incident, uh, you know, it's like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. And and as you were were speaking, Joe, I was thinking about the fact that we don't know. These police officers go from crisis to crisis to crisis, maybe something minor, then another crisis. They don't know what they're going to be facing, minute to minute, case to case, call to call. They have they don't know what's ahead of them in their shift. And sometimes, and, and I think far too frequently, too. Joe, I think, sorry, but I don't think they get enough community and possibly even peer or superior support. It's true, and they just have so much to do, and and it's uh, either love them or you hate them. The people that hate them tend to get more publicity than the ones that love them. And then, of course, we have to do tough love. You do it, I do it. You know, when there's something goes wrong, we're, we're the first to not be afraid and to to tell those stories. We don't like to do it, but we do it. But I'll give you an example. Uh, you just made me think of it. Uh, that is in the Halton region. They had uh, three young people that overdosed that looked like an opiate kind of thing, and the First people there were these cops, three different cops. They went in there and they got out that, how do you say it, Naxalone or whatever that is, and they administered it and they saved three lives. The kids were going to die right there in the backyard. And, you know, we heard about it and we started poking into it. And by the time I talked to the officers, they were just wonderful officers. The one guy told me, you know, it's funny, like, we did it. We were all adrenaline. We were glad they were okay. But we did seven other calls right after that. So we'd actually even forgotten about it. Not forgotten about it, but, you know, they kind of moved no, on to other things. Yep. 
And, uh, and they have no time. They have, they have to go from issue to issue, from case to case, from emergency to emergency. There's no downtime. You just go because you have to go. So in that case, they're heroes. And then, you know, in Peel region, we had a young man, and you covered it, that was shot. Uh, there were seven, there was, you know, obviously there was a whole bunch of people shot. But there were seven guns. The very next day in the 410, there was a shootout between the police and, you know, there was two gangsters shooting each other. One guy died on the highway, on Highway 410 in Brampton. What is the priority of the province? That's the people. That's us. I'm talking about Ontario here. That's the SIU. The mm-hmm. SIU comes in. Everybody stop talking. You can't do anything. Here's your notes, whatever. Yeah. And instead of trying to catch, which now is nine gunmen, all in about 12-hour period, mm-hmm. we're focused on the SIU and making sure that the police did everything right. All right. Now, I, you know, there's times when we need to do that. There's times when that's just getting in the way. Okay, Joe, thank you so much for, for today. And uh, condolences. I just, say, I just want to say their names because... Sure, go ahead. Us, uh, one is Vadim Marcinek, and he was in 12 Division in Toronto. Right. And the other one was Tom Roberts, who served Ottawa Police, both in their 30s. Okay. Uh, God rest their souls. God rest their souls. Thank you so much, Joe, and... Condolences to their families and friends and their fellow officers. Joe Warmington, what a great guy. Joining us now from uh, Victoria, British Columbia, at least I think that's where he is, is Mike Smith uh, at Mike Smith News on Twitter, Vancouver province columnist, one of the very best in this country, uh, covers the political beat better than anybody that I know, and uh, also uh, dad, who's was your son playing soccer right now? Yes, where I am in Victoria, I got uh, a yeah, busy, busy day on Sunday with my kids playing soccer. But uh, I'm always happy to talk to you, though, for sure. Well, I appreciate you coming on, Mike, because uh, because yeah. you know the kids want dad uh, to be to be there, be around. They, dad, I scored a goal. What were you talking to him for? <laughs> yeah, they probably don't even know I'm here. That's okay. Okay, let's start. <laughs> let's start first of all with how things are developing in uh, British Columbia with, uh, can we do something provincially first? What about the situation between British Columbia and Alberta and uh, the Alberta Bill B-12, the uh, the turn off the taps bill? There's been a federal court mm-hmm. decision. How's that all, what's the what's the background in B.C. and how's it rever- rever- reverberating in the province, whatever that word is? Well, the Bill 12 in Alberta is the notorious turn off the taps bill and what that did was it, gave authority to Alberta to punish British Columbia for the B.C. government's opposition to the expanded Trans Mountain Pipeline. And what they threatened to do was to cut off oil and gas shipments to British Columbia to basically punish the province. So turn off the taps, make them freeze in the dark. You know, you want to fight our pipeline, how do you like them apples? We'll cut your oil and gas off. So that's what the turn off the taps bill was. To me, Roy, I I always thought that was just a bluff. I never thought that Alberta would actually do something like that. And I certainly never thought that any judge or court would say that is legal, that a province could do that to another province. And sure enough, uh, last week we saw a court decision that effectively sided with British Columbia on it. They granted an injunction against Alberta actually using that turn-off-the-taps law, even though I think they had zero intention to use it anyway. And it now continues on in court. It will, uh, While the injunction's in place, they'll continue to fight it out. 
I think at the end of the day, that turn off the taps bill will be found unconstitutional and it will have no force at all, which I think if you talk to any reasonably informed lawyer, they would tell you the same thing, that this thing had a, a snowball's chance of actually being uh, standing up in front of a court decision. So I think the only people that are happy about it are the lawyers who are making all kinds of money on it. It was nothing but a bluff and just polit- political pandering. It was part of my... I uh, think, in my, in my opinion. Yeah, in my no, opinion. I understand. I, part of my conversation with Jason Kenney as well yesterday... And this is this. Is, I mean, we also had a Van, uh, British Columbia Court of Appeal involved, right? And they voted five to zip uh, the other way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, BC's got our. We do our own political pandering here. So BC said, "Well, here's what we want to do. We want to be able to tell Alberta what they can put in the pipe. So we want the authority to say to Alberta, you can't put your your bitumen, your heavy crude oil, in that pipe in Alberta.'" and pump it to the coast of B.C. because we're worried it would spill in the, uh, in the water in the ocean and create a terrible oil, oil spill. So they went to court saying, we want the authority to tell another province what they can put in their pipeline. And, and that's a joke, too. That, that will fail, too. Mark my words, it's already failed once at the B.C. Court of Appeal, the highest court in B.C. British Columbia has now appealed it all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, yep. where it will fail as well. These pipelines are federal jurisdiction. When they cross provincial boundaries, they become clearly the jurisdiction of the federal government. Alberta doesn't have the power to turn off the taps. B.C. doesn't have the power to tell Alberta what to put in the pipe. It's all just political po- pandering and politicians trying to look tough. And the only ones who are going to get make any be happy about it are the lawyers, or who are lining their pockets with billable hours. I think taxpayers in both provinces have been stung by this, Roy. Uh, you know what? I, I don't disagree with you, Mike. And I think this also points, though, to something that I spoke earlier in the program with uh, the Premier of Saskatchewan about. Scott Moe was on the show, and we were talking about the national unity issue or the sometimes lack of unity or increasing fractiousness between the regions and the, and the provinces, and uh, the premier pointed to concerns about exactly that. And I, uh, these situations that develop between provinces lead, I don't know about you, but they're increasing my concern about the potential for some really bumpy roads in relations between regions and provinces and the federal government. Well, I think what the court cases have shown is that this pipe, this pipeline in particular, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, is clearly federal jurisdiction. It's supported by the federal government. The federal government actually bought the thing, and it, it should probably get built. Now, there, there are still some unresolved court cases involving First Nations who, who are uh, once again uh, arguing that they have not been properly consulted on the project, but I... I don't suspect that will win in court either. I think the biggest wild card now for this pipeline is the outcome of this federal election. And if we end up in a minority government situation, so let's say Justin Trudeau is reelected as prime minister, but with a minority government, perhaps having to rely on support from the Green Party and or the NDP to govern, and both of those parties have said that they are against this pipeline, would they hold that over Trudeau's head and said, we'll only support you if you kill that pipeline? That's something to watch for here in the future. Yeah, and, and Mike, uh, I don't really have a lot of confidence that Mr. Trudeau's heart is in getting TMX constructed anyway. I, he, 
He did what was politically expedient for him, I think, and we'll see what happens. October 21st is going to tell many tales, but it's not going to be the end of it because there, there will still be court cases. There will still be objections, regardless of how the government turns out and to, to, uh, to well, appear, what the reality well, is. We'll, we'll see what the judges have to say and yeah. the courts have to say, but you're right. The other kind of wild card in the deck there is the possibility of civil disobedience on the ground in British Columbia. If you have people willing to lie down in front of bulldozers to block construction of the pipeline, um, that could be something that happens too. I, I remember many years ago covering uh, the Clackwood Sound anti-logging blockades in British Columbia in which they arrested over 800 people. Mm. It was the largest uh, civil disobedience in, in Canadian history. And for weeks and weeks and weeks during that particular summer, they just hauled away people every day in paddy wagons. Could yeah. you see a repeat of something like that in British Columbia? Maybe. Uh, Mike, there were two other things that I uh, that I wanted to ask you, but I'd only asked you for 10 minutes. Do you have a little bit longer? Yeah, you bet. Okay. Let me put you on hold. I'll take a break, and then we'll come back. We have some more questions for Mike Smith, and I want to find out from Mike how the Justin Trudeau blackface issue is playing in British Columbia and as well, I think uh, the entire country is very interested in how the uh, Vancouver Granville writing is progressing toward October the 21st, what it looks like as far as who may or may not be elected there. Jody Wilson-Raybolt running as an independent, the former attorney general and star liberal ca- candidate in 2015. More with Mike Smith on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Boy, time is going by way too fast for me. You ever ever have a day like that, Mike Smith, where you look at the clock and you can't make head or tail? You don't even know what the big hand and the little hand are for anymore? All the time, yeah. That's situation <laughs> exactly. normal for me, yeah. yeah. By the way, <laughs> later on in the hour, we're going to be speaking with uh, a representative from Bookmaker EU where they're uh, po- taking where they posted the odds on uh, the international political leaders who are most likely to disappear from the scene. And uh, Justin Trudeau leads with odds of five to four, followed wow. by Boris Johnson, three to two. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is third at three to one. Donald Trump, 10 to one. And uh, Nicolas Maduro of Venezuela is fifth at 20 to one. So we'll have that story wow. from Bookmaker EU at the end of the hour. So, uh, Mike, on the issue of Mr. Trudeau, and uh, I'm speaking with Mike Smith, a great columnist with Vancouver Province, talk show host at CKNW, our Vancouver Chorus radio station. Mike, on the issue of Trudeau and blackface, how is that uh, reverberating in British Columbia? Well, how, many, how much legs does, does it still have? I think it was very damaging to Trudeau here. I mean, you know, I've, I've heard from some people who, who th- tell me they think it's a big nothing burger and people should just move on. They've heard from Trudeau and they don't want to hear about it anymore. I've heard the other extreme where some people uh, accuse the media of underplaying the story, believe it or not, to, uh, to benefit Trudeau. So those are kind of two extreme positions. And then I guess there's people in the middle who listened to the first apology that night on his campaign plane, which I thought was a very weak and a poor performance by Trudeau that night. And I, I thought to myself, he's going to have to do a do-over here and apologize again, which he did the next day. I thought the apology the next day was, was better. And he's clearly trying to put it behind him now. He doesn't want to talk about it anymore. If you take a look at 
the damage on the ground, I guess, I don't know, the polls are a little bit conflicting, Roy. I mean, if you take a look at that uh, Main Street poll that came out the other day uh, in Metro Toronto, showed the Liberals with a healthy lead, and there was another poll by Manos that showed the Liberals with just a one-point lead in Metro Vancouver, which is extremely important territory for the Liberals, of course. So I guess it remains to be seen exactly what what will be the damage. But one thing to keep in mind is in such a close election like we have right now, even a small amount of damage uh, could be enough to create uh, change, tip the, tip the outcome in some closely contested ridings. Yeah. So, and and the, the other thing is, what if it affects turnout? What if there are some liberals out there who are just sick and tired of the whole thing and decide not to vote? That could hurt Trudeau, too. You know, I've heard that several times from uh, from really usually confirmed liberals Either they're going to vote for somebody else or they're just so fed up with this man particularly that they're yeah. not going to vote on October the 21st. That's the only solution that they can think of. But let me ask you this because, you know, we talk about small margins and I completely agree with you. The margins are so potentially razor thin that any any slight swing in any number of ridings could change the entire national dynamic. So right. when you look at... Vancouver, uh, Granville, Jody Wilson-Raybould, and uh, uh, Jane Philpott's writing in, in Ontario, they were stars in 2015 for the Liberals. They were major cabinet ministers. We know the sequence of events that took place. What happens if they're both elected and they're independents and their votes oh. might carry the day on, on an initiative down the road if that parliament turns out to be really, really tight. What's the situation in Vancouver-Granville now? Who who looks like they're leading? Does Jody Wilson-Raybould have it in the bag or not so much? I don't think it's necessarily in the bag, but I think she's still pretty popular in that riding in Vancouver-Granville, and I spent some time with her uh, about a week or so ago in the riding, spent some time with her at her campaign office, and her campaign office was very busy. There were lots of volunteers in there. Her signs are up all around the riding, and she certainly has very high name recognition in the riding, and I think there's still a lot of goodwill for, toward her. I, I think there's a, a large number of people who think she's been pretty courageous in the way she conducted herself in the SNC-Lavalin scandal, and they're prepared to vote for her. Um, a lot of her liberal members of her liberal riding association, including the riding association president, uh, came over with her and are supporting her in her campaign as an independent. Now, it's it's obviously very difficult traditionally for an independent to get elected, but I think that she could certainly pull it off. And at this point, I suspect that I got a feeling she'll win that riding. And the blackface thing, by the way, I think is is a good example of a riding where even a, a small amount of damage to Trudeau and the Liberals could affect the outcome of that riding if it's close. So I, I think she's going to win. The Liberals have got a, not a bad candidate, not as high, high name recognition, a guy named Talib Nurmohamed who's campaigning hard, but I, I think that she's got better name recognition and she's worked extremely hard in that riding to get reelected, and I think she's going to pull it off, personally. Yeah, and Mr. Nur Mohammed has run before and lost, so that's not always a good sign, yeah. is it? If you're, if you're associated no, with uh, losing, it, 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 it might affect some voters. Right, and, and one, of the, one of his talking, frequent talking points in his campaign has been to accuse uh, the conservatives of racism and tolerating racism and why hasn't Jody Wilson-Raybould been more outspoken in confronting racism and then and then the blackface thing by Trudeau 
uh, blows up and right. it kind of collapses that kind of moral soapbox that the liberals have been standing on. So I think that took away a talking point for him. So I think it hurt him, that blackface thing and that writing. And I, at this point, I think Wilson Raybould has got a very, very good shot there to win. She told me she wants a minority outcome. Yep. She would love to see a minority government okay. and if, if, she, if, she, if her vote suddenly becomes a lot more important in that parliament. Mike, always great talking to you. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you. Anytime, Roy. Mike Smith News, at Mike Smith News, is where you'll find him on Twitter. Uh, Last weekend, Canadian Medical Association President Dr. Sandy Buckman on this program told us about the 5 million people in Canada who have no family physician. Now, just a few years ago, and not not very long ago, the number was at 4 million, and I remember getting into debates with uh, politicians about this. 4 million sounded just outlandishly unacceptable, and it is, and now it's at $5 million. And again, uh, this past week, Mr. Trudeau promised a doctor or a nurse practitioner for each one of those $5 million plus PharmaCare goes beyond just announcing money. This affects every single family and every single person in this country. Dr. Sandy Buckman, president of the Canadian Medical Association, is back with us. Dr. Buckman, thank you for coming back on the air. When you said 5 million people were without a family physician, without a primary care physician last weekend, it shocked me. It shouldn't have, but it did, because that's the first chain, the, the first link, the first real link in the healthcare chain for most Canadians. Speak to the issue. Just explain to us what that means to the big picture and to the individual Canadian when we hear 5 million people don't have a family doc. Well, thanks very much, Roy. Um, it's great to be here, and I'm, I I wish I, in a sense, didn't have to talk about this, but on the other hand, I love talking about it because I think it is the, it is the key question. Your family doctor is your gateway to the healthcare system. Um, I served as a, a family doctor for over 22 years in Mississauga. I now kind of focus on a, on palliative care issues, but I was a comprehensive family physician in the Mississauga area, and I um, my patients would see me for virtually any medical problem or health issue that came up, physical, psychological, social, emotional, etc. And I was that gateway. I had the, as a family physician, I had the skill set to provide overall comprehensive care. I was a generalist. We kind of say we look after patients from cradle to grave. Um, If I didn't know it, I made sure I found out about how I could get that person access if I didn't have the correct expertise to specialist care, to consultation um, care, to hospitalization, what have you. And I think it's, um, so it's key that each and every Canadian has that access to the system. And right now, as, as you said so well, it's not happening. Even at the moment, my family doctor is retiring, and I don't even have a family doctor right at this at this point in time. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I said <laughs> that's that's about the only response I have is <laughs> wow. When when when, when yeah. you don't have a family doctor, and really, well, I'm every, working on it. I'm working on it, but it's just you know it's difficult, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I've heard people say the same thing. Their doctors have uh, retired, uh, and and now they're frantically looking 
for a family doctor. They go to walk-in clinics, but it's not the same because if you just pointed out, there's a relationship that develops between a patient and a doctor. The doctor knows the patient. The patient trusts the doctor, and that's a great way to begin. When you don't know who you're talking to and you have a sense that maybe you're on the clock or only bring up one item because, you know, because I've got a thousand other people out there I need to see as quickly as I possibly can, the system starts to wobble and, if not outright, break down right then and there. Because often patients don't know, don't really know what's going on with them. They have a number of symptoms. They might say, okay, well, I'll tell them about this symptom or tell her about this symptom. Meanwhile, there's another symptom that's far more significant, but they don't bring it up because they don't, they don't have that relationship. Am I making sense? You make total sense. The relationship between patients and their personal physician is one based on trust. And without trust, you can't really have effective health care. Um, so if that patient isn't trusting of the doctor, then the likelihood that all the information that will come forth is reduced, making the likelihood of the correct diagnosis and the correct treatment uh, also reduced. And sadly, even in our society today, there's many patients as well that don't have that trust. Um, Our Indigenous folks across the country, our First Nations, Inuit Métis peoples, for example, have had challenges with the healthcare system and lack trust in that healthcare system for very good reason. Um, A lot of our marginalized and vulnerable folks. I also work uh, in the street now with uh, a group called Inner City Health Associates in Toronto, and we provide palliative care to people on the streets. And a lot of the people that are in shelters, subsidized homes, or literally on the street also lack trust. Let me just stop you. Can I I stop you for a second? Sure. You just said palliative care on the streets. Mm Mm-hmm. That's scary. Well, this is the downstream issues. Yeah, yeah. No, I understand, but that's scary. Yeah, I mean, just to go off on that for a minute, the the mortality of people uh, who are homeless, or we say uh, structurally vulnerable, are um, about about 50% lifespan compared to the average Canadian. Wow. So uh, that's around 40 again. years old. And, uh, and so we need to get services and go where this population is. But what I work on with any group, and this should be for Canadians who are housed or, or, or not, is trust. I guess that's the point I want to make. We have to work hard at establishing trust and so that patients will reveal everything that they can to us and trust that it will um, be looked after carefully and appropriately. And that's that continuity of relationship between a patient and their family doctor over time and place. And as well, there's a reason it's family doctor, because we do look after generations of families. I look after from sort of the great-grandparents uh, right down in, in uh, with many of my patients. So... Uh, you know, that's the essential of it. And again, not enough Canadians have access to that kind of specialized relationship that's key Five for effective health care. million people. Yes. Out of a population of 34 million have no family doctor. That's, that's, that is, that's a major alarm bell that is absolutely ringing. Now, Dr. Buckman, I've always felt that one of the unfortunate realities in healthcare in this country is that the political system is far too deeply involved 
Uh, and, I, and I look at other parts of the world. You have far more experience with this than, than I could possibly have. But I look at countries where it seems to work or work maybe better than here. I look at a country like Switzerland where everyone has to buy insurance, but it's tailored to the financial abilities of the person. And and everybody gets health care and, and gets it quickly. Is there um, – am I oversimplifying things? Is there a model out there somewhere – that Canada could at least look at adopting or perhaps adopt and make our system more representative and better so we don't just hear politicians saying, we're going to throw a few billion dollars at this, so you're okay, you're taken care of, and then they go off to the next event. Uh, is there a system somewhere that we could take advantage of that works? You know, I think it's a great, it's a great question, and I think there are aspects of every system where we could take some advantage of and take some lessons. Um, I'm not sure that one size fits all. Um, you know, in Canada, we've, we have certain values. And that, that value, I believe, with regard to health care, is that no one should have a barrier to health care um, if they don't have the ability to pay. We are, our value in Canada is about equity, um, that we all have the same Healthcare. I was uh, just in New York uh, last Monday at the UN Health Conference on um, Universal Health Coverage, where all the nations of the world came together to uh, to make statements about the importance of equitable access to healthcare. And really, they were echoing Canada's way that Canada has since the 60s. Um, we don't have a perfect system, but we do as much as possible right now have an equitable access to care. Everyone has the right to health care that won't bankrupt them. And there are not that many countries that do. Other countries, certainly Western countries like the UK, Australia, um, France, Switzerland even, do have hybrid systems. And that means private health care parallel alongside a public health care system. Um, there's some the people that are able to afford to uh, to get into the private system, you know, have a great system. They are getting superb care and they're lacking waiting times. But the data will show that the rest of the public who cannot jump the queue and cannot afford to enter the private system actually wait longer than we do in Canada, say, for surgical procedures. There's lots of evidence to support that in countries like, as we, if we compare ourselves to somewhere like Australia. So they, so, so, actually, they, so their wait, yeah. and I have to take a break here, Dr. Buckman, but their wait time, wait times are longer than ours because in this country, as you know better than most, you can, you can wait years for, uh, literally wait years for an appointment with a specialist and then, uh, and then a surgery can be months and, and longer down the road as well. So it's even worse in other parts of the world. Yeah, just to briefly comment on that before break is that you take physicians and other health care providers out of the public system and into the private system. Mm -hmm. So if you're an orthopedic surgeon who works in the private system as well, you are now no longer available to the public. So wait times increase both for consultation and for surgical procedures. We, and, and that's in the case where we are inadequately resourced with the number of physicians and other health care providers. I can, I can address that further, but that's part of the problem. If we had a wealth of providers, sort of an overabundance, 
then maybe something like that could work. But okay. it can't work where we are so so under-resourced in terms of, of human resources. Let me take a quick break. We'll come back with Dr. Sandy Buckman, the president of the Canadian Medical Association, and uh, the CMA wants you and me and all of us to remind politicians, not just each other, but remind the political parties who want to run this country and uh, the provinces that health care is the number one issue, and it is. We'll come back with Dr. Buckman on the Roy Green Show on the Corliss Radio Network. You can follow my guest on Twitter. It's uh, at DocSandyB, at DocSandyB. Dr. Sandy Buckman is my guest on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Uh, Dr. Buckman, I uh, I was going to tweet something, but I want to ask you before I do. <laughs> and I, I really, I, I have here, at Doc Sandy B., my guest, President, Canadian Medical Association, five million Canadians do not have a dedicated family doctor. Politicians claim they have the answers, solutions. They've claimed that for decades, and the situation becomes more dysfunctional. Am I right? Am I wrong? Should I tweet it or not? Well, that uh, would be interesting to uh, to tweet that out and get okay. Canadians' response. Done. <laughs> and I want people to know how to reach you. Now, I have to ask you, this is lots of things that we only have a few minutes, and uh, I don't know how much we can get through, but are we on the road? Or if, we don't, if things don't improve, are we on the path to 6 million Canadians being without a family doctor? Well, you know, I... When we hear that there are promises, such as uh, Mr. Trudeau said, for a $6 billion down payment towards uh, access to a family doctor or a health care team, and, and care in primary care, again, the foundation of the system is much more effectively delivered in interprofessional teams, might I add. Um, I'm encouraged to hear that kind of promise, but we have heard promises before and uh, there hasn't been necessarily uh, enough action. Uh, during this federal election campaign, we at the CMA uh, have taken up the advocacy, particularly this one, on the necessity of getting access to, uh, to primary health care to a family physician. Mm-hmm. And so we're hoping that, this one, you know, politicians are listening, so we're hoping that actually the, uh, the political parties are listening to this, uh, to this, to Canadians, because we're hearing that over... Sixty percent of Canadians, as you mentioned earlier, see this as a priority. So fingers crossed, and we are absolutely willing to continuously work with the uh, federal government to put in place the necessary funding and the transfer payments with strings attached to the provinces to uh, provide the funding to be able to give access to every to every Canadian who doesn't have a family doctor. Um, they have that leverage, and uh, we really have to insist that whatever party gets in, that they would, they'll begin to uh, put funds towards this. Let me make it attractive to them. If they were to be able to find a way to do uh, what they promised they're going to do, and that is provide a family physician uh, for everyone, for 5 million people, there's at least 4 million votes waiting for them there. Exactly. So... Um, I mean, if I can be as crass as possible, and it's it's if we come back to the beginning of our discussion. I won't go anywhere else than the family physician issue because we only have two minutes. But that is really the building block of the healthcare reality. People have to know their doctor, uh, respect their doctor, feel comfortable to talk to their doctor, and feel that you'll walk out of the office having dealt with somebody who cares about you and cares about your health or cares about your loved one's health 
and is actually making progress. It's, it, you just feel better. I mean, it, you, you mentally feel better, emotionally feel better, and that's another building block on the path to health. Okay. We know that having family physicians in the community uh, increases lifespan, actually, reduces uh, disease. It's, it's focus is on, on uh, prevention as well. There's reduced hospitalizations. Um, it is the foundation of any healthcare system. And I heard that over and over at the UN uh, last week. So uh, it's, it's key and we need to do better in Canada. And I think I'm hopefully that the federal government has finally heard that. CMA.ca is the website, right? And uh, actually, if people want, we're encouraging people to challenge their candidates, and Canadians can get involved through something called CMA Health Advocates. And that's a platform designed to bring voters together to advocate for improved health care. And they can engage, too, with their local candidates. So hey. lots of thousands have signed up already. I'd really encourage it. Well, I'd rather work with doctors than political candidates, so count me in. <laughs> and I hope you find a family doctor. Well... Fingers crossed. I, I'm going to do my best. Yeah, it's serious but, uh, business. Yeah, we face it. We face it as well. Everyone, every Canadian faces yeah. it. Dr. Buckman, good talking to you. I think the CMA is in good hands. Thank you for the time. <laughs> Thanks very much. I appreciate the opportunity. All the best. Dr. Sandy Buckman, the president of the Canadian Medical Association. So let the political candidates know that five million people in this country don't have a family doctor. And what are you going to do about it? Not just say about it and talk about it. What are you going to do about it? Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.